Before we jump in, a note on our content. This is created for adult audiences only. We advise listener discretion. We have discussions about sexual violence against women. We use bad swear words. We talk openly about women's autonomy. And you might just hear some opinions that don't jive with your own. I feel that every woman in Pakistan is kind of ready to see a change in her own life and in everything around her, in the society around her. So she is ready and she wants that change. Men are not ready, of course, and they do not want that change. Hello, hello. This is Her Ganjo Won't Smudge. I'm Shauna. Join me as I talk to Desi women who are imagining a better, fairer world, free of all those unwritten social rules that tell us just how to be a good Desi woman. Today, I get to speak to an icon of Pakistani feminism, Shima Kirmani. You might know Shima as the dancer in the Coke Studios hit song, Basudi. But today, you'll get to know her as a revolutionary feminist and how she has connected Pakistan to the fourth wave of feminism that has swept the globe. Shima is from a generation where women were kept in gilded cages. There were clear lines about what was acceptable and not in society. Women were supposed to be cultured and erudite, but were they supposed to be marching on the streets and causing a fuss? No. Of course, Economic classes are a very real thing, but has much changed for Desi urban women? What I'm getting at is that Shima was definitely part of a strata of society where learning classical Indian dance was a sign of culture and refinement. Shima took an unlikely road. She wasn't content with life in a gilded cage. Since the late 70s, Shima has been standing up for women and minorities by taking on the religious right and even the military dictator, Zial Haq. Imagine what type of repressive society that was, and then imagine Shima, a classically trained Bharatnatyam dancer who refused to give up on her art because, well, as Shima puts it, who gives anyone that right to take dance away from me or to tell women what they can and cannot do? Shima, you stood up to a military dictator. I don't get a chance to say that very often. When Zial Haq came into power, women were effectively reduced to second-class citizenship. As part of all this, he also banned dance. You are a classically trained dancer and performer. How did you respond to this? That is the time where dance became a political statement for me. Before that, I was already learning, I was already performing, but um, more as an art form, as something that I loved to do, as a hobby, as a form that just was my way of expression. But when it got banned, I think at that point, my reaction was that nobody has that right to take away this very basic right of mine to dance if I want to dance. Who gives anybody the right to take away this right? 
And uh, I just felt that, no, I will not allow somebody to do that to me and I will continue performing, come what may. So that was my spirit, I think, at that time that I was ready to defy. I was ready to resist this imposition of banning. And I just felt that I will continue to do it irrespective of what happens to me or to my life, because it became something that was like a political act itself. And this was not because I desired dance to become a political act, but it was forced onto me in a sense. I want to ask about your feminism. Where did this come from? You went from being a well-brought-up, upper-middle-class young woman, your father was in the army, to standing up to a dictator, to dancing in public, when you were told you couldn't do that. Where does your og, your fire, come from? I think it came a lot from my own experiences of growing up in a patriarchal setup, in spite of having a family that was very open, very liberal, very educated, civilized in every respect, and open to uh, to having their daughters learning dance and music, because it was my family, my parents who encouraged all of us to learn all these art forms. But more, I think they encouraged it more as something that they felt would be part of one's education rather than something that, that one would take up as a profession or as a vocation or as a passion. And then at the same time, I think what inspired me a lot was um, I had been studying in the UK. I had gone to an art college. That gave me the times, you know, the historical period at that time was, I'm talking about the late late 1960s, you know, when there was a huge upheaval all over the world, especially in the West as well, you know, because there was the anti-Vietnam movements going on all over the world. There was um, all the... Um, the anti-authoritarian movements everywhere, you know, the flower power, the hippie scene, you know, all that culture was emerging. And at the same time, I got an incredible exposure to feminist thought, which was just emerging in the West at that time. You know, there was, in UK, there was Germaine Greer, and in the States, there was Kate Millet. And so all of this was coming about. And being in an art college was a very... um, in a sense, a very inspiring, very revolutionary atmosphere almost. You know, everybody was protesting against something mm-hmm. or the other, whether it was oranges that were coming from Israel or, or the Black Panther movement. Or So all this, I think, gave me the, this uh, understanding that when I go back to Pakistan, whatever I do has to be meaningful to not just me, myself, but to everything around me. And that's when I decided that, you know, these are the directions I'm going to take and these will be my political acts of defiance. You formed Tariqe Nisman, which means women's movement, as an organization that fights for the rights of working class women. You started this in the early 1970s during Zulfikar Ali Bhutto's time. Why did you feel you needed to create Tariqe Nisman? Even though I do feel that Bhutto's time was open for women, but it was not open for the working class. The work was about trying to explore why we women in Pakistan 
have this very low status and which of the women of Pakistan are facing the worst situation. And it was obviously that it is the working class, you know. So it was both from class point of view as well as from a feminist point of view that one came to this conclusion that it is a working class women who one needs to connect with, who one needs to communicate with and have a dialogue with and where one needs to start talking about raising the status, creating this awareness that how are we going to change this situation? Feminist protest has been around for years in Pakistan, but it feels like something changed on March 8th, 2018 with the Audit March, that a gear shift happened in Pakistan. Tens of thousands of women protested at these marches held in cities across Pakistan. You're one of the leaders of Audit March. Why do you think this gear shift happened? So you see, I mean, I remember the first time we celebrated 8th March, and that was in 1979. And uh, at that time, probably it was one of the first times that anybody in Pakistan was talking about what the day, the 8th of March stands for, you know, and, and trying to explain why we are having an event on this particular date. And then all these years go by and we are still standing at a level where patriarchy exists, where violence exists, where nothing really has changed for the better. And five years ago, 2018, when we decided that we must march as women, there were already, if you remember, the, the year before and a couple of years before, there were lots of women's marches happening all over the world, in US, in, in Europe, in various countries of the world. And we just felt that why we in Pakistan can't do this? Why can we not also try and take over or come into the mainstream of politics uh, with our issues. Because up till now, we are fighting, we are struggling, we are doing all sorts of things, but we're nowhere near the mainstream of the political life of the country, you know. And so that was the reason why we said, let's give it a try. Let's, we feel that women are ready to come out to um, express themselves, to say that we've had enough and to ask and demand, in fact, not just ask, demand a change in the whole environment. So we try to bring together various organizations, various individuals, various groups. And we said, let's just do it on one agenda. And that agenda is that women are marching for their rights to be recognized as equal citizens of this society. And absolutely right. I think it was a historic event. I think it did I mean, even the first march, I mean, to have thousands of women on the road was certainly was inspiration. And we didn't know what would happen, how many people will come, how many women are going to actually, in the final analysis, turn up on the road or in that uh, garden where we did that first event was at Fair Hall Gardens. And it was a wonderful surprise. I mean, it's so inspirational. The call to action was felt by so many I want to talk to you about some of the posters women carry. The posters are so controversial. I think they're brilliant. Mera jism, meri marzi, my body, my choice, a slogan we've seen on the streets of New York City, in Delhi, in Karachi. But there are many others that are so personal and so universal at the same time. 
خود کھانا گرم کر لو اور وارم اپ یور اون فوڈ I read that the woman who came up with this poster said it was a daily reality for her to hear things like, why would he make his own tea? He's a man. And she'd had enough of it, so she wrote down the slogan and carried it to the march. Another one that comes to my mind is, there you go. I'm sitting properly now, which is drawing attention to how women are pleased all the time, how they dress, sit, speak, exist. I'm also remembering two other posters, Stop Staring When I Drive and Tumhare Baap Ki Sadak Nahi Hai, as in, this road doesn't belong to your dad. About the intimidation women drivers face and reclaiming public spaces. So I'd like you to tell us a little bit about these posters. Were these slogans that the organizers came up with or were these completely homegrown? I think these slogans are absolutely brilliant, as you said. And and the best part of it, Jana, is that we did not create many of them. They were brought in instinctively by just ordinary members, participants of the march, who just came in with these slogans on their own, you know. And so that has another power. That it is not that one is creating the slogan, one is sitting down and thinking out, Ki ye, this is what the slogan should be, etc. No, this was just such an instinctive and spontaneous thing that happened, which was that. So that I think one needs to remember. That's an important aspect. I get why the clergy objected, but why do you think there are women who criticize Arath March and the posters? Why do you think that is? Why did, I mean, as you're, you're right, though, of course, the right wing, the clergy, the, the misogynists, they're all, they're all totally against each one of the slogans. But why are women against these slogans? We have to look into that and we have looked into it. And we found that so many women have actually resented these slogans and said, Agar, if you remove their slogan, we will come to the next march. But we decided to own each one of the slogan, even though, as I said, we did not create those slogans, but we decided that this is going to be mm. part of our, in a sense, it becomes our manifesto that my body is my right to decide what I do with my body. And I think it's basically very simple. It's actually how patriarchy penetrates the psyche of every individual to make their thinking totally patriarchal. So when a woman says, oh, why are you using this slogan? This goes against us. Even today, we have a lot of women saying this to us. And we then talk about it. We talk about what it actually means to each one of us when we say that, no, when I say no, it means no. When I say that I do not want to get married at this point, it means that I don't want to get married at this point or whether I want to have children or not. So that the decisions about us and our lives have to be made by ourselves and women understand that so actually the the best part of it is that it did open up this dialogue and the dialogue however tough and controversial yes. and difficult it may be is taking place today at every minute in every household you know brothers are discussing it with sisters and fathers are telling their daughters i don't want to hear this slogan etc etc but the opening up of that dialogue i think has been a very very huge step for the women's movement in pakistan yes. absolutely so shima let me ask you I imagine that the work that you do and the marching that has taken place, it comes at some expense to you personally. 
and that the right wing objects and that they make a point of coming after people who are speaking out. Have you had such situations happen to you? Yes, I think because I chose dance, which was something extremely unusual for a female activist to be doing. And theater, as you know, I mean, acting. So I'm a, basically a dancer and an actor. So I have faced this right from the beginning of my activism. This whole thing that is thrown on me that, you know, oh, so she's a dancer, so she's bound to be loose woman. You know, so that kind of uh, jargon one has faced almost all my life. But with Aurat March, what was the worst thing that happened to us, I think, was the time when they couldn't find anything else to target us with. And they manipulated some of our videos and put words into our mouth, which they recited. And, um, you know, because with technology, you can do anything and tried to put us in the category of doing blasphemy. Now, of course, as you know, if, uh, blasphemy in Pakistan is a hugely difficult issue to tackle. And we as feminists do not bring in religion into our dialogue. We are very clear about this, that religion is everyone's private matter. And we are not going to be talking about any one religion to say that this is better or that one is better, you know. So we have been very clear on this right from the very beginning. But of course, these are things that one, I think, when we decided to do the Aurat March, the five, six of us who did start it and get, got together with it had decided that we will face all of this and we will be ready to face it. So some of the girls have had a more difficult time when they have been actually trolled on social media, targeted. Somehow I have always chosen to ignore my targeting and never respond to it. And I felt that that has always worked, at least for me it has worked, that I don't answer back when people make these very nasty, vicious, horrific kind of comments on Facebook or any other. So I just don't respond. And um, I think after some time, they are bound to become quiet. So I think that everyone chooses their own way of uh, handling it. But yes, a lot of us have had to face a lot. But I think this was part of our decision that when we decided to take up Aurat Mahajke, we will face this. There's no option. In November 2019, far away from Pakistan, in Chile, thousands of women performed a protest song called A Rapist in Your Path. Here is one line from it. It wasn't my fault, not where I was, not how I dressed. Women were responding to the sheer number of rapes in Chile and how the police and government were not doing enough. This is a militaristic dance. Women are marching, squatting, raising their arms in defiance. And they point and call out the state and police and presidents as rapists because they're part of a culture that condones, through inaction, the raping of women. Victims were being blamed. Sound familiar? Well, it sounded familiar to so many women that the video went viral on social media and women performed the anthem around the world. (laughs) 
It's been performed hundreds of times now in 25 languages, 50 countries, including in Pakistan, in Urdu, by you, during the 2020 Aurat March in Sindh. Tell us how you came across a rapist in your path. Well, since the beginning of Aurat March, we have been looking for anthems, songs that we can present at the march itself, you know, at the event, which which can be sung collectively. Because my input in Aurat March has been this very important aspect that arts brings a lot of collective strength to people. When we sing together, when we dance together, when we do movements together, it inspires us, it gives us courage. And that is the courage that one, one wants to pass on to all the participants that one is sharing. The, so we heard this Chilean um, women's anthem on social media, basically. And when we were writing our songs, we said, well, let's translate this one. And at the time, what was very important is that we had been facing from our leaders accusations like when a woman dresses in such a such and such a way she is bound to get raped i mean you know when our the heads of our state are making comments like that so we were full of anger that time and we just decided yes it was a very it's a very powerful anthem it sort of hits immediately and and the action that goes when we say that the rapist is you tum ho rapist you know in urdu it's like we are addressing all the men in this uh, society and saying exactly what the, the translation that you read out said that it it does not matter what i'm wearing it does not matter where i am what time of the day or night you are the one who rapes me so i think all of this background, you know, the fact that the head of the country was making statements like that. And there's so many rapes were happening at that time. There's a highway rape and these incidents, you know, we are screaming and shouting, but violence against women is increasing. It's even today, as we are talking, I think, right. I mean, you know, the violence against women is just increasing. And now, today, with the flood situation, with the people who are, who've had to, forced to leave their homes and are out under the open skies, who suffers the most? It's the young girls, the women and the children. Mm-hmm. There, there, there's a lot of trafficking, there's a lot of mm-hmm. sexual abuse not just harassment, actual abuse that has already started that women are now already talking about. So all of this kind of combined to make us decide that, yes, we will translate this anthem and we will stand up on stage and perform it. So we did exactly that. We performed it on stage. We performed it on the roads, in the street, in groups. I mean, it brings, I think, to everyone who takes part in it. It brings so much strength. It gives us so much courage. You've seen so much change in Pakistani society and in the ways in which feminists have resisted the state. Would you say that we are witnessing a women's liberation movement in Pakistan right now? Are we living through that? My understanding is that we are moving towards that. I feel that every woman in Pakistan is kind of ready to see a change in her life, in her own life and in everything around her, in the society around her. So she is ready. 
and she wants that change. Men are not ready, of course, and they do not want that change. So there's a huge resistance from them. But I am also convinced that, I mean, if you look at the political movements that have taken place in Pakistan, the movements of defiance against, whether it is against military dictatorship or against fundamentalism, those have been definitely movements which have been led by women, not by Pakistani men. So that says a lot. And I think that that is exactly what it says, that if there is going to be a change in Pakistani politics, in Pakistani society, it will be the women who will bring the change because the men don't want this kind of a change. They want to maintain the status quo as far as male-female relationships are concerned. Of course. Would you say that there's some similarity between what you're seeing and living through in Pakistan now and what you experienced in the late 1960s in the UK? That kind of energy of change? Definitely on 8th March, one feels that. One feels the vibrations of that energy and the power that women are coming. They know that when they get back home, they will be told off. Many girls are actually hide and come. They don't tell their families that they're going to the Aurat March, but they still come. And you do feel that uh, energy on those kind of occasions when thousands of them come out. And, you know, because uh, even though we as organizers of Aurat March try to go and mobilize women. We do go to areas, we do go to communities and we say, this is why we are doing the Aurat March and this is why you need to come and participate in it. But actually, when you see them coming, it is their own desire that brings them there. Because our saying to as many, I mean, we are not paying them, we are not, you know, like saying, you know, we're giving you so much money or we're giving you so much food, you have to come there. They just have to come and they come through their own wish and their own desire because they want to see that change. So, yes, I think that there is a huge possibility. And I feel there are times that we are ready to see that. change. The problem is still like the problem has been of left wing organizations in most of these countries, that there is no organized form. Because Aurat March is not a party. Aurat March is not even an organization as such. Mm-hmm. You know, Aurat March is, I would say that it's a movement, perhaps, you know. But somebody has to lead that. And some it has to go in certain directions. And it has to find certain ways to move. I mean, right now it's just been happening organically. But things need to change in certain ways. And we, some of us have been talking about it. You know, we are saying, why are we doing this Aurat March every year? Five years we've been doing it. Now, are we going to be just doing it on every 8th March? Is that the purpose? Or are we moving towards something else? And of course, the purpose has been, and we're quite clear in our heads about it, has been that we do want to see women become participants in governance, of the society, in the administration of the society, in the politics of the society, and in basically in decision making. This is what we want to finally achieve. Mm -hmm. So we have to find ways to get there. We're nowhere close. When I found that video clip of you in an orange sari at that audit march rally on that stage, performing a rapist in your path, I was like, wow, what a moment. 
Here is Shima Kirmani, a woman who's been dancing in protest for women for so long. And here you are doing a dance of protest that's traveled from Chile. You added Pakistani women's voices to the fourth wave of feminism that's sweeping the world. So I've got to say from all of us who are pushing for equality and safety for women, thank you, Shima. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Shana. I hope this was good and uh, I enjoyed talking to you. Shima is described as an actor, dancer, and activist. This trinity of nouns bothers me. I guess it sticks Shima in a box so we can say, okay, she's like this or she's like that. But it doesn't capture what feels to me like the most inspiring characteristic of Shima Kirmani. And to me, that is her dogged determination to fight on. When I was researching Shima, I found picture after picture, video after video, with Shima's fist raised, pounding the air above her. I value that so much because I know how easy it is as a woman to give in, to adjust, to backslide into positions we don't really want. We do it for lots of personal reasons, financial reasons, reasons, reasons. But Shima, through her choices, her life choices, her teaching, her activism, inspires me to dig deeper and to connect with that electric current of who gives anyone the right to tell me if I can dance. Thanks for listening to Herkaja Won't Smudge. I'm your host, Shana. If you want to get in touch with us and rage or have a good cry, or just tell us what you're thinking, look for our webpage or find us on Instagram. Until next week. <laughs>